Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry. And today we explore some of the things that we've been learning from the various Zoom calls and discussions that we've been having over the past couple of weeks, including reflecting on one of the calls that Robert and I were both a part of, along with Brock Hammett. Uh, we were on Rob Gray's uh, Journal Club, uh, number three. So we reflect a little bit on that. And so if you guys want to check that out, you can uh, find it at Rob Gray's Twitter and or YouTube channel and or his podcast feed. Additionally, we explore or talk about some of the things that we've been doing with the Discord server along with uh, the fact that Robert will be facilitating and hosting a discussion on the Discord server about sabermetrics and R and analytics. So if you guys are interested in that, that'll be happening this Wednesday, April 29th. So without further ado, today's podcast. Let's begin. So, Robert, uh, how are we doing today? Uh, you been on any more uh, interesting Zoom calls lately? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the other Zoom call that I've been on recently was a kind of a pitching uh, Zoom call with Brewers, I don't mm. know, Director of Player Development. I don't think, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, or Assistant Director of Player Development, Jake McKinley. And Vanderbilt mm-hmm. pitching coach Scott Brown. That was actually a very mm-hmm. insightful, very insightful call, and learned a lot from that short amount of time that I was um, taking a part of that. What what kind of things were your uh, main takeaways uh, from that conversation? Were were they more like baseball oriented or sabermetric oriented? Um, kind of what were your main takeaways there? Yeah, so. I think my biggest thing is I try to apply sabermetrics slash analytics to what those uh, methodologies that they said. So mm-hmm. one thing that was brought up was kind of uh, how Vanderbilt really focuses on throwing their pitchers off the mound because they feel mm-hmm. that it's best that. for them to optimize their game setting. Because, you know, in a game setting, when you're a pitcher, you're not going to walk out to second base and throw from there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're pitching on the mound, so you're most optimizing that. So I think a lot of it is me asking the, these questions like, okay, how can we track track certain things? So one thing that came to my mind was use kind of one or two word cues for bullpens. Mm-hmm. And in the sense that, all right, one, let's say in a bullpen setting, we'll say, all right, this this week or this day's bullpen will be just focus on throwing strikes. The next, mm-hmm. focus on throwing velocity. The next, mm-hmm. focus on movement mm-hmm. or generating spin with the ball, stuff like that. But what I kind of took away from that is, yeah, try try tracking that. Try using those cues and be like, okay, let's let's see how they pitch within the zone. Or let's see how... Mm-hmm. Because one, the biggest thing with that is in terms of optimizing a skill set is 
one needs kind of the other to get better. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you have high velocity but no spin, you're not going to be as good with high velocity and average spin. But mm-hmm. if you have no command, great velocity, great spin, that's tough too. So you could kind of do that in a manner to be able to break down, okay, what are pitcher X's strengths in terms of those cues? Because all you're saying is literally focus on throwing strikes or focus on throwing velocity, so, focus on movement. One thing that I think would be really interesting is that to to get from the athletes, and I think, I don't remember if I talked about this on a previous podcast, but, you know, like, one thing that I think you're speaking to is the the intention. You know, like, I think we talked a little bit about this with uh, Rob Gray's podcast, or on Rob's podcast, of how um, intention shapes um, the movement. And, and so, you know, asking the player, hey, what were your intentions there? Or what were you um, thinking about or whatever? So, you know, like having having players uh, do a reflection afterwards. Um, I mean, there are some limitations with that um, when it comes to, to that um, on one of the movement meetup calls um, that I was on with emergence. Um, I believe it was Kathy uh, Sierra um, who was talking about how sometimes like athletes don't really realize what they're doing. And so when you ask them to think about it, they come up with what they think is the most logical answer based upon, um, you know, their previous knowledge and the sociocultural constraints um, of their setting. And so that's where, you know, there's, there's at least a limitation there potentially in terms of how great that data is. But sometimes it is really good data and it'd be, it'd be interesting to me to see if like there are words, you know, that are repeated words. and then that that tend to either help one athlete so like robert do you know how to do or would you be able to do like a a word um like look at word percentages or whatever so like for example you've seen those word charts where like the more a word is used the bigger the word is um you know and the the less it's used the smaller it is yeah yeah i've i've built a um i've built an app using that it's called word clouds um, mm-hmm. I built that using um, one of my favorite artists, which is Lana Del Rey. I did that mm-hmm. to kind of see what what words she used the most. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm familiar with that. I mean, because I think that would be a cool way to analyze at least what you're saying with regards to um, you know cues or intentions um, that that an athlete is is using or um, during their practice settings. And being able to track that, I mean, because I think like what you're speaking to, it's like so huge that like if you want to better understand, uh, you know, your development process, you need to track things so that you can, when you're doing your um, post analysis, you're better able to understand like how much time was I actually spending on X, Y, or Z. Um, and because if you don't track it, you're you're left with kind of trying to guesstimate and oftentimes we're not really good at accurately estimating um how much time we spend on things and so i think that's why measuring is so huge and then one last thing to kind of touch on 
with regards to throwing off the mound, like, like you were saying, like Vanderbilt um, uh, was doing a lot, is that um, from, from some of the, the research that Driveline has done, when you throw off a mound, uh, the, the stress on the system, especially the, the arm and shoulder and UCL, is lower than when you throw off of, uh, or lower than when you throw uh, a flat ground. And so from a stress standpoint, it seems as though the more that you can throw off of a mound, potentially you are also reducing your risk of injury. And so it'd be also interesting if you had like a modus sleeve or a biomechanics lab and you were also tracking that data um, to begin to see and look at loads um, on the athlete. I think that's where a lot of this um, tracking, Robert, that you were talking about, I think to me becomes really interesting is, you know, tracking the intent, asking the athlete like, hey, what was your, what was your RPE for today and what was your intent of velocity? Um, and tracking that along with getting radar gun readings and spin rate readings and all that sort of stuff. And then you can begin to, you know, same thing with like the word cloud and the RPE and the intent of velocity. You can begin to start um, mapping connections and or seeing if there are any correlations between um, those pieces of data. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that Vanderbilt, like in mid-January, I believe, got a pitching lab for themselves. Mm. So mm-hmm. I think they were really uh, on that uh, Zoom call, the pitching coach was really mentioning about how they were going to put that to use, but obviously the season got cut short. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, being able, if you can apply it, being able to get a motor sleeve or a biomechanics lab and then uh, mesh it together with either flight scope data, Rapsodo data, TrackMan, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. is really huge because then you can use that tracking. And to go back a little bit, Usually when they when they have their pitchers throw off flat ground, it's mostly for long toss to increase arm strength. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and they have a bit of a kind of a tracking system where they go on a, I think, week-by-week basis from what I remember, where they kind of track certain metrics and say, all right, last week you were like this, this week you're doing this now. And mm-hmm. I think that's, again, that's really important. That should be applied for any any different types of uh, games within the game of baseball. So not just pitching, but hitting and fielding, um, even running. There's so many creative ideas you can use to apply these kind of situations where you can use tracking and you can get players better from a development standpoint. Yeah, and that's why I think Things that, you know, for example, like track that Driveline has is really cool and interesting because things like analysis that I would like, and I don't know if um, track does this or not. Um, in my free trial, I couldn't quite figure out how to get stuff loaded in. And at the time I was really busy. So if I had to like completely load in a ton of data, um, it was, it was going to be a really time consuming process. Um, but at the same point, what I think 
is really interesting to measure and be really cool to measure is like we want to, I want to oftentimes know like the breakdown of percentage of how much time we're spending on stuff. So for example, I want to know things like, okay, um, when was the last time we did, like, let's say we're talking about command. Like when was the last time we did any sort of command focused um, training, you know, you know, implementing um, some sort of level of variability in terms of uh, command training. Um, when was the last time we did that? How often are we doing that? Um, when was the last time we did um, like a velo day? And um, different things, you know, in terms of the different types of breakdowns of, of um, qualities that you want to address. Um, I want to know like what percentage of time we've been spending on these. Um, and then when was the last time or what has the frequency been um, over time? Um, that type of analysis, I think, is super helpful for a coach to, to begin to um, have more objective data uh, with regards to that instead of being you know, like, you know what, I don't think we've done this in a while and not having any actual idea of like when the last time this, this was occurring. Um, because too, you could then also begin to track and see if you're also collecting numbers in terms of, you know, um, if we're talking pitching, like throwing velocities, like if you're tracking those, you can begin to see like, okay, what are the things that we're doing in practice? What ways may they be influencing um, our velocity or our command or something like that? Yeah, and one big thing that uh, Coach Brown brought up in that call was that the data that you collect and acquire should really be beneficial to you because as a coach, you now have a way to be able to quantify and be able to explain better to your players mm -hmm. in the sense mm -hmm. that, you know, you're not saying, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're tailing off on, on your uh, fastball, something along those lines. But now mm -hmm. you can say you're tailing off on your fastball and here's why. Mm-hmm. And then mm -hmm. be able to tie a number to it. So, mm -hmm. and I think tracking too, like tracking all of this stuff is so important. Again, I cannot explain that enough because then if you do track this stuff, which again, driveline great track is great for this, mm -hmm. being able to measure on a weekly basis and say, all right, this week you looked great. Last week or this up. Next week, he didn't look so great, and here's why. Um, you know, his release points were off. He was feeling sluggish um, based on based on his um, confidence level slash um, wellness, uh, wellness wellness questionnaire. Yeah, wellness questionnaire. Because yeah, again, like that's another thing they brought up too was like you know mental and well being, which again is another standpoint of. If you're not well enough to perform at the highest level, then you're obviously not going to perform at the highest level. Well, and two, like if we're talking about it from an ecological perspective, we, we understand if we're talking about, um, you know, the three uh, categories of constraints, um, you know, the individual, uh, what's going on with the individual affects the performance. And I think, 
I think a lot of coaches are starting to understand the importance of that, but I still think that we don't realize how much that impacts um, performance. And I think we might have talked about it previously on a previous podcast, but like um, near the end of um, our our spring season, um, we we often were talking with our players about like their energy level. And I think it's really telling or like to, you can really understand how much of the, what's going on uh, with the, at the individual level or the organism level and how big of effect the mental state has on um, motor performance. So if you spend all this time working on mechanics and then something as simple as an athlete's uh, mental state, um, you know, psychological arousal, all that sort of stuff can basically mess up all the um, mechanical work that you've been doing. It, it seems to me that like that, that is the big flaw of being highly focused on mechanics because mechanics are not the driver of what of the motor outcome it is to me, it's the intermediate, you know, like the, the athletes intentions, um, the other constraints that are placed upon the, the athlete, um, and how they're perceiving and connecting to information is really what drives or shapes the mechanical outcomes that you see, because the mechanics are just the interface of how the athlete is interacting with that problem. And so all that to say that I think we actually need to spend way more time on the mental side of the game. And that's why so many coaches um, have talked so much about how important culture is to, to their success as a program. Yeah. And there's a lot that can be said about it. I, I'm not going to go into detail, but that mental well-being, again, is just so Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. and being able to understand that some days you just may not have it. And that's not because of mechanical flaw. It's not because of things, you know, things along those lines, mechanics, um, movement, stuff like that. It's just because, hey, maybe, maybe player X had a, you know, rough, rough mm-hmm, test. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's did, he did the right amount of studying. He felt like he was prepared, but then when he got into the exam room, it, he didn't feel so prepared and he felt like he didn't do so well. So it, again, it could be something as simple as that, but that's again, another reason why players could maybe not be performing at their best level because they just had a bad or I don't want to say bad, but a uh, rough. Right. Like the, the level, the stress level is elevated, all that sort of stuff. And I think though, the cool thing about this and, and baseball in general, especially at like the, I mean, I, it's true across all levels, but I think especially at the, you know, lower levels, youth um, to college is that we get to use the game as a way to help players um, and we have the ability as coaches to help players improve their mental health, you know, give them strategies to actually be able to deal with this sort of stuff. Because I mean, at the end of the day, this is just a game and, but 
situations and scenarios like this will come up in life and giving them a a process and a way to actually uh, deal with that and learning how to deal with that through a game is the best way to to learn how to um, improve um, like say for example you know like you have stuff going on at home but you still need to perform at work to keep your job and so learning how to be able to um, or vice versa, you have something bad happen at work and then to not have it affect um, your relationship at home or something like that. And learning how to process and deal with failure, um, stress, and how you can actually be able to um, still be able to perform and be the person that you want to be in other settings um, when you have other things that you need to do. And so baseball is great. Um, a great way to learn how to do that. Um, you know, a lot of, I, cause I've been on some zoom calls as well and listening to, um, I can't remember which softball coach this was. Um, if it was like LSU, I think, and they were, uh, their coaching staff was talking about, um, with their girls, how important like the mental state was and how, how helping them like, you know, leave your baggage, um, you know, kind of at the door, so to speak. And while you're here being focused on what we have to do, like learning how to do that, I think is, is super important, you know, like, Hey, right now, this is where your focus needs to be. And then, you know, afterwards you can, you, you know, that stuff will always be there. Uh, and so like, this is your time to kind of escape from that. And so, um, I just think that it, like you're saying, Robert, like mental health and is, is super important. Um, and we get to use a game to help, help, you know, we have the opportunity with it, with this game to help people, um, begin to learn, um, different, um, processes to how to actually, uh, deal with that and potentially improve their mental health. Absolutely, Garrett. Absolutely. Well, um, is there anything else you want to dive into on this subject or do we want to transition a little bit to um, some of the other things we have going on? Yeah, let's 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 talk about what we have going on. <laughs> um, I feel like now is a good time, though, to, uh, you know, talk a little bit about like we had Rob Gray on the previous pro- podcast and we were also on. Uh, one of Rob's uh, journal clubs. Um, so you guys also, I forgot to plug that too in the intro, but you know, that's all right. Um, we'll plug that again right now um, because Rob talked about it too on the podcast. Um, you guys should also check out his journal clubs um, as well and follow him for all of the great uh, different articles that he posts. But uh, we were on one of his journal clubs talking about um, pitch sequencing and does that affect um, hitters um, timing or hitters success at the plate and so um, Robert kind of what was your experience like I should also mention that the full um, Finding the Edge uh, crew was on so Brock Hammett uh, made a uh, cameo and was on the, the podcast or the journal club with us uh, with Rob Gray 
yeah, I think the biggest takeaway was that sequencing does play a role as so mm-hmm. as long as you have mm-hmm. multiple pitches to throw. And I found it interesting that based on, I found it more interesting that based on the kind of environment that they laid out where they had these uh, three different options, which mm-hmm. was like sequences of five of the same pitch, completely mm-hmm. random. And then well, it was interesting too, because it wasn't hand. completely random. It was pseudo random in the sense that they had already predetermined the, um, the sequence, but like they had randomly generated, so to speak, the sequence um, along certain parameters. Um, like they wanted to make, they wanted every sort of combination possible of pitches. And then they made sure that they showed up a certain number of times um, essentially. Um, so it, it was, it was in essence, in my mind, it was pseudo random because uh, if it was truly random, you would, you would, you might end up getting like four fastballs or five fastballs in a row. Um, and that's not ex- necessarily what the experimenters were looking for and maybe only get like two curveballs. And they're like, okay, that's not a big enough data set. You know, we need more curveballs in there. And so it wasn't like truly random, so to speak. But uh, yeah, yeah. And to kind of branch off of that too is they had each uh, pitch uh, thrown consecutively in that random sequence. So at some point you would see two fastballs in a row. At some point you would see two, they called it slow balls, two slow balls and then uh, two curve balls, I guess, in a row. But at, at varying points, obviously. But And then another thing I found interesting was that they kind of hid the arm of the pitching machine, if you will, just so that batters couldn't get an idea because most pitching machines, at least the ones that I've experienced, they do have a slight change in uh, its motion when it's throwing a different kind of pitch. So I found that pretty interesting as well because it it should it should be... I feel like it should be a little more, to me, it felt like it should have been a little more open because mm-hmm. in fairness, there are some pitchers that do have a somewhat visible release point when they're throwing a different pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or arm slot. Yeah. And too, though, I think that's that was one of the things that we talked about on the on the journal club is that we would have liked to see a real pitcher being used. I mean, I think that's some of the limitations of a lot of um, studies and then two, the other limitation that was brought up by uh, Rob Gray was that because it kind of kind of contradicted some of his findings. So like they didn't find um, although in their, in their conclusion, they talked about the importance of having multiple pitches. They didn't find any substantial, um, statistical difference um, of having pitch sequence. Like it was more the pitch types um, seemed to have a greater influence on a batter's um, success rate or timing um, than the actual pitch sequence itself. And um, we, Rob, Rob and us kind of discussed the fact that that might've had to do with the fact that the, they were they were only looking at the previous pitch, the previous pitch's influence on, on that 
particular pitch that the batter was um, trying to hit at that point in time. And Rob ended up looking at, I think, at least three to five pitches prior, like seeing how the sequence of at least, you know, uh, two or more um, pitches prior had an influence on that particular pitch um, and swing. And so that was potentially another limitation of that. And two, like I've heard before, because I asked uh, one of my um, colleagues uh, who works in in professional baseball, um, we were having a conversation about like, well, like um, pitch type matters. You know, I assume that pitch type mattered in two strike counts. And he was like, I asked our analysts and they found really no relationship between um, pitch type and, and in an O2 count um, or with, uh, with a count with two strikes. And it more just had to do with the fact that there were, there were two strikes. And um, I think that's really counterintuitive. Um, you know, the more I think about it, the more initially I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Pitch, pitch sequence has to matter. And I still think it does matter, but I think the amount, the importance that we place on it might actually matter a little bit less than we think. It'd be interesting too, like if you've actually looked at any of that in the data um, as well, I'd be curious what's your, your, also your uh, outside of the study itself, you know, what other things that you have looked into or seen or read about? Yeah. So in terms of that two strike data that you're mentioning, it, it mm-hmm. does, it plays a factor that just solely on the fact that there's two strikes. Two, mm-hmm. I feel like the effect is greater for some hitters than others solely just because there's two strikes. Because then, again, it becomes, to some hitters, a thinking game where mm-hmm. they are just thinking, I can't strike out, I can't strike out, I can't strike out, which... Again, we don't really know if that's what they're actually thinking, but I find that interesting because I think it'd be really cool to be able to study that and say, all right, if the batter's mind is actually thinking, I can't strike out, I can't strike out, how much does he actually strike out? How much does that actually become counterintuitive rather than just going up there and uh, basically using your regular approach? Hmm. Well, I mean, too, this comes back to like, if we're talking about uh, an ecological approach or like constraints, the, the simple constraint of the situation, regardless of like, I mean, the, the players intentions will definitely play into this. But in addition to that, it's the it's the pressure of the situation knowing that like, hey, if I swing and miss here, I'm I'm out. You know, there's the pressure of I get one shot right now, you know, and so it's I think that plays a a big factor in terms of like once you get to two strikes, there's more pressure on the hitter. Um, you know, it's it's as if you went up to the to the plate and you're like, hey, you only get one pitch. You get one pitch, and uh, if it's over the strike zone or whatever, if I say it's uh say it's a it was a good pitch and you don't swing, you're going back. Like you're done. Like that's like that's the that's the type of stress that's like placed upon the athlete. Uh, I was watching uh, somebody do uh, on YouTube uh, a contest where like, if you can repeat uh, this uh, um, piano melody um, correctly, you win an iPhone, but you only get one shot. So I'll play it for you. And then uh, you try like, 
that's that's essentially what two strikes is is like having that much stress um to try to get it right and so Yeah. Yeah. Having, having two strikes is hard. Hitting is absolutely hard in any setting, but, um, kind of backtracking to the study a little bit too is kind of, they measured, they used a lot of quantitative analysis to measure kind of if they were, how well timed it was. And so I don't remember off the top of my head how exact they measured that, but they measured, I think it was along the lines of, they had force plate data. Yeah, and I feel like that too is partially counterintuitive as well, because in the idea that when, when what you brought up earlier in terms of uh, so sociocultural um, kind of ideologies, where the batter might actually feel like he's late, but because he doesn't want to say he's late, he'll say, "Oh, I was on time on that pitch," or. Yeah, and so I think that there again it, it is it is super tough to be able to measure a well-timed hit because most of the metrics that we use today at the MLB level relies on post-contact metrics like exit velocity, launch angle, the measure of barrel, a hard hit ball. Right, but it would be also nice to optimize a well-hit ball pre-pitch or prior to the ball making contact in that sense. Yeah, so like I know right now there's there's being work done in terms of kind of these metrics that Blast has or um, K-Vest, things of that nature where they use kind of force plates, uh, bat sensors, but Basically, it's measuring like vertical bat angle, attack angle, um, kind of those metrics on the, the swing itself prior to contact. 
But what what I'm referring to is once we go back, kind of shift back from the kinematic sequence is when you start just it, your initial reaction in this kind of sense where, okay, if a, a pitch is coming my way, how can I best optimize this to become a hard hit ball based on my first movement? I think I think that's somewhat helpful, like at least how I'm looking at it from an ecological perspective is I think it's it's useful to know what they're what they're the the, uh, the individuals like peak outputs are, meaning like we want to know what their best performance looks like, you know, when their body is in its quote unquote optimal state. Um, so we can understand like deviations from that and and or um, like, okay, how far off are they if we want to get them back? Let's say they they get injured and we want to know like, okay, has their body returned back to peak levels? But where I'm going with this too and why I wanted to pull up this uh, definition to make sure I get it right is this idea of, look, the human movement system is great at solving problems. And so this is like to... To make another analogy, if you lose half of your brain function or one side of your brain, um, you know, has or a part of your brain has brain damage, it will rewire some of those. Um, it will rewire um, some of those functions to another part of your brain, so that you can still you can actually regain that functionality back. And so, if that's true, then it's also true when it comes to movement, the movement system itself, like it's a problem solving system. And so therefore it really comes down to, are they able to problem solve and still solve that problem? So the question is, is does, does the system have degeneracy, which essentially is the ability of the uh, athlete to effectively or efficiently perform a movement in a variety of different ways through varying levels of complexity. So all that to say is that, you know, are there multiple different ways that an athlete can solve this problem? And so, yes, the, these like pre-performance metrics of like how much force, what's their peak force, when's the timing of that? I think the question comes back to like, are they able to solve the problem in an effective manner? And the more different, the, the multiple different ways that they are able to do that because of the fact that, like you talked about, like before, uh, Robert, is that day to day things may change. Like they may not be optimal one day. Does that mean that they can't play? You know, like there, there may be a lot of days that they're not able to go out there. But if their system has degeneracy, meaning like it has multiple different ways that it can solve that problem. Like I'll give another example that I heard like Paul Canerco had like five different swings and he would show up at the ballpark. Um, every day and you'd figure out which swing was working or which swing was on, you know, like he basically had degeneracy um, when it came to his swing and he would just figure out, okay, what day, like which, which, which option do is, is working today. We're going with that, you know, like, I mean, cause so much too of a lot of same thing with pitchers, um, a lot of um, pitchers and pitching coaches have talked about like, the best players are the ones that figure out like how to perform um, well or well enough on days that they're not feeling that great. 
you know, they still go out and find a way to get it done. Yeah, maybe it's not an immaculate start um, and they give up like, you know, three, four runs, but they're able to minimize the damage and they're, they're able to figure it out. And I think that's where the, the uh, like kinematic and biomechanical data is useful because we want to understand like, what is that, what is that productive range? And where like, you know, we can tell from the um, biomechanical data, like he's going to have a really good day to day. Like we can do that within the weight room. Like um, one of the strength coaches that uh, I, I was listening to on VBT stuff, he would also do a hand dynamometer test. And so whenever their uh, grip strength was the highest, he knew to test them that day. You know, so if he wanted to make, make uh, um, you know, let his coaches know like, hey, we're doing really good, he would just jump them, um, do their vertical test or their max test on days where their grip strength was the highest. And so like we can know, we can find out when, a, when, when it's most likely that an athlete will perform well. But uh, I think we also want to utilize that data to understand like what's the variance and what's the useful variance uh, within that. Absolutely. And there's, there's a lot that you can do with that. And I think whenever we do come up with a system that can be applied at the amateur level in terms of mm -hmm. force plate, um, movement data that is, you know, not banned by the NCAA. We boards. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm talk. I know I'm not talking about like prior to game, but like in game, if, mm -hmm. if there's a possible mm -hmm. way for the future, because again, mm -hmm. like some, you could be able to field covered in force plates. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. To be oh, able to be... have kind of like this alternative method or something along those lines where, you can get some type of movement data in game mm -hmm. at an amateur level. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's, what's interesting about the stuff that, uh, Dr. Uh, Sony, I, I don't know if I pronounced his last name, right. But, uh, where, where, you know, you're having that, um, and two, I think driveline recently talked about like their attempt at it too, of, of trying to get kinematic data off of just like a 2d video and maybe with just like two cameras. Um, you know, and having the biomechanical, uh, markerless, um, system, you know? Um, so, I mean, that, that might be a good, like to your point, like a good low cost alternative to getting in-game kinematic data. Because again, like we're talking about, there may be a difference. Like we want to know like how big of a difference is, especially from an ecological perspective, how big of a difference are there movements from the game to practice or, or vice versa, exactly. you know, from practice exactly. to the game? Exactly. So, and it's not only that, but how bigger difference are the movements between games? So mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. maybe it's less for guys who are in the minors and majors because they're playing just about every day. But for mm -hmm. those uh, baseball players at the college level, you know, they're playing – Tuesday or Wednesday, they're playing a midweek game and then they're playing over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Do they, does their mm -hmm. movement get better or does their movement allow them for more problem solving on mm -hmm. Saturday by his third at bat and then all of Sunday? Or is it, is it a difference between at bat? Is it a difference by game? Is it a difference by a day of the week? 
So I think well, where I that'd be really cool to measure. Absolutely. And then on top of that, like it would, I would think that this would be a way to evaluate players, you know, from a scouting standpoint, um, you know, is like being able to tell like, okay, how adjustable is, is a player, um, you know, have an adjustability metric and two, like, and seeing again, like this is where, okay, we have ideas, like now they need to be tested. And so how you, how you would test it is you would, you would want to see like, okay, how, if you have an, a, um, a uh, adaptability score like how how adaptable or how dexterous is this athlete it like you want to um basically run that score against like say for example something like war and see how well correlated those are because you want when you're when you're evaluating a player like you want to make sure that the metric that you're using actually correlates to performance and so like actually having an idea of like okay if say for example um, you know, like their variability is really high. Um, that actually correlates with uh, a lower war. Um, but if it's if it falls within this range, like um, a variability, um, you know, it's not super low, it's not super high, it falls in this like middle range. Um, it actually is highly correlated to war, um, so to speak. And then this can become like a way to evaluate um, the athleticism of a player. Yeah, yeah, because then you can not only evaluate athleticism, but to your point earlier, is be able to understand a player's kind of consistency within his movements. Because mm-hmm. um, again, you there could be a time where there's a quote unquote outlier, but that's just because mm-hmm. you know, like like we talked about earlier, just the person had a rough mental day or something along those lines. But whereas Mm -hmm. you kind of see, you can go through the data and see a lot of peaks and valleys with the movement data. Sure. The average movement would look great, but once you get into kind of the median movement and the movement of the mode, the most, or like the range of movements going to kind of statistics, statistical methods, you can kind of see, or um, another one, variance, where you can kind of see, well, this player may have great days, this player may have bad days, and then you can also be able to apply that to season statistics and see if that actually, if there is a correlation between does a greater movement result in, you know, greater batted ball contact or, you know, greater... uh counting stats like average OBP slugging, so on and so forth. And then on days of bad movement, does that lead to more weak contact, more strikeouts, things of that nature? Yeah. And to also kind of to touch on, or probably like try to give uh, somewhat of an explanation of like a uncontrolled manifold uh, analysis, so to speak, is like, you're looking at, as far as I understand it, I want to do more research in this. Um, and really understand this idea and concept that Rob Gray kind of laid out in episode 100 on his podcast, um, is that if we're talking about functional variability and an uncontrolled manifold analysis basically is looking at like, okay, we're along, along, let's say a a regression line, because like oftentimes if we're, we're talking about statistics and data, if you run a regression line, it doesn't like perfectly fit the data. Right. And so what, 
as I understand it, um, and to Robert, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. I'm using the terminology incorrectly. So feel free to jump in on this. So, um, but when you have an uncontrolled uh, manifold analysis, you're basically looking for, okay, where are the successful results and, and, and what is the area of successful results around this regression line and um, of the data that you're collecting. So if you're collecting kinematic data, um, you want to like, say, for example, if we're looking at pitching, you want to correlate those data points, those kinematic data points to, to like, okay, was that in the strike zone or not? So like that would be considered a successful um, throw or a kinematic uh, data point if it correlates or if it resulted in a uh, strike being thrown um, or a missed sw uh, a swing and a miss or whatever you define that as. And so then through that, you begin to, um, there's a certain area and bandwidth that would emerge uh, of where successful um, mechanical uh, combinations, so to speak, um, lie. And so like, where is that functional variability? And, you know, to go back to our, so if people are wondering like, okay, what, what are you talking about exactly? So if you look at our logo um, for, for the podcast, those points that lie within the circle are going to be that area of functional variability. And so when we're going back to the analysis piece of, of this in evaluating um, players, you can also use this to evaluate uh, progress in terms of um, um, is an athlete becoming more adaptable? Um, or do they have more functional variability? Like you could track it over time and see like, okay, is their functional variability increasing or is it decreasing? Um, and then we could also then begin to track if we're collecting other data points, like, okay, what training interventions or what other things that are going on that would affect an athlete's, um, functional variability because more, because, you know, no athlete ever, um, performs the same movement, um, again and again, you know, especially in sport, um, you're going to therefore have these uh, variable data points within a game. So we can actually then look at it from game to game, like uh, where, is, where does their functional variability lie? And so I think this can be also a good way to track um, progress in an athlete um, as well as evaluating the athlete um, from like a scouting standpoint, so to speak. Yeah, and going back to our kind of tracking uh, idea that we have, being able to use that movement data and to be able to track it on a weekly basis to say, all right, well, this week you were doing this, this week you were doing this. And you can be able to see, all right, well, how can we best improve those movements or how can we create certain movements? Because when we talk about the kinematic sequence, it's, it's not necessarily optimal for every player. There's certain movements mm -hmm, mm -hmm. based on their swing that is actually better to kind of, I, I'm thinking of K-this off the top of my head, but you mm -hmm. can kind of see like, all right, player X is better at, you know, starting his arms before he starts his torso, something along those lines mm -hmm. based on their swing patterns. Now that may not be a real example, but uh, just saying that for context, it's saying, 
Well, I mean, if it plays, man, do you really want to fix right, it? Right, exactly. So, make like, it if, pattern? if he's out there, like, oh, he's not following this kinematic sequence, but he's out there, you know, putting a bat on ball, you know. He's hitting a lot of barrels. Hitting a lot of barrels. Would you really want to change it? I'd say no, because you're sure the, based on the definition of the kinematic sequence, this is incorrect. No, but being able to optimize, again, we're, we're more focused on optimizing movement. And if this player feels comfortable, and again, it just comes down to comfort level. If, because to certain players saying, all right, you should move like this. If they don't feel comfortable doing it, then it's just a detriment to them because, again, it becomes a, whatever you want to do, you want to be comfortable doing it. And mm-hmm. I, I think part of it, too, is like allow them to try it out. Allow them to say, all right, give this a few tries or give this a little bit. But if you aren't comfortable doing it, then obviously go go back. But I don't, I don't want to say like give them complete and utter freedom on that because then that allows them to not not be as open minded on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, too, like that's that's where you know you touched on. You know, like I, it's so interesting, like the optimizing the movement component of it, um, because that's where you know we had this kind of discussion with uh, Caleb as well of like, okay, we're always trying to improve the athlete, um, the athlete's capability. And so I think, you know, on a future podcast, maybe we should dive into and explore that a little bit more in terms of um, optimizing movement. And what does that mean? Um, Because I think we all kind of mean potentially different things, especially, you know, from like an ecological perspective. But um, I do want to at least uh, transition here a little bit and talk about some of the other projects that we're also uh, working on as well. Um, So, Robert, are there any other sort of things, uh, or rather, do we want to cover the project that we're collaborating on um, first and then individually uh, second? Uh, What do you What do you think would be best here? Let's uh, Let's go uh, with the Discord server. Let's do it. Okay, um, so I ended up uh, creating a, a separate uh, Twitter page uh, for the Discord server, which is somewhat odd because uh, I don't have a separate uh, Twitter page for the uh, podcast. But um, the only reason that that ended up happening was the fact that in order for me to connect um, Twitter to the Discord server, um, I needed to have an account set up for that. And so I didn't want to connect my personal account to the Discord server. So I ended up creating a Twitter account for the Discord server. So um, if you guys uh, want to uh, follow um, the Baseball Coaches Clubhouse, um, if you see that, uh, follow you. Um, uh, now you know who it's who it's from and, uh, and by. But uh, I mean, I did want to explain to you like my thoughts further on it. I mean, the whole intention behind it is it, the Discord server itself, or at least this one, is not focused solely around um, the ecological approach and, and sabermetrics, so to speak, and how those two come together. Um, it's, it's really designed for baseball coaches as like um, this uh, public forum or 
I mean, it's it's kind of a private Discord server since it's not like Twitter where everything is public. But it's it's basically a forum for coaches. And I want it to be kind of like a public library for coaches and a resource um, for for people to share ideas and like for it to be a marketplace of ideas um, in which, you know, both of the respective things that both Robert and I um, are very passionate about um, have a, a place to be shared with other people, but it's not, the focus is not for it to be centered around those things. It's, it's more to be centered around the baseball community and to be reflective of the baseball community um, and the, uh, the views um, and the, um, I want to say characteristics and um, the identities, like the diversity of, of the baseball community I want represented in there. And so with that too, we want to um, begin to facilitate some discussions and ways to um, further interact with you guys in there. And so um, one of the things that we're, we're going to be doing um, in the future is facilitating and in the coming weeks, facilitating uh, different uh, discussions um, within specific channels, whether that's the weekly discussion channel, or if it's a little bit more of a specific topic, say, for example, uh, ecological dynamics, then maybe we'll uh, actually um, have the discussion in that channel um, specifically. But um, some of the things too, like, for example, uh, Robert, you're, you have some um, plans for the, the Discord server as well. Yeah, so on Wednesday, April 29th, I will be doing a kind of live in-discussion chat on the Discord server involving analytics and involving that what, what leads to, at the college level, getting into the NCAA tournament. And I think that is really important. Um, I did a little bit of a study on it the other day on a Twitch stream where I used mm, a mm -hmm. machine learning algorithm to kind of find clusters where you can kind of see this statistics displayed where you can see, all right, you have to have at least at minimum this kind of uh, slash line, but then conversely, you have to allow the slash line. and how I selected kind of those features of in terms of variables where some of the important features were like batting average on base percentage slugging, the obviously more traditional features, but things like uh, strikeout to walk ratio, strikeout percentage, stuff like that. So I think this will be a really good discussion for coaches to kind of add their coaching perspective in it and then for me, more on the analyst side to be able to say, all right, well, probabilistically, here's how we can best attack that solution. Mm -hmm. And two, I think we're also, uh, you know, while the sort of um, stay at home order is in place, um, try to do a Zoom call as well. And we're going to model it off of uh, emergences, uh, movement meetup calls where. Um, I really love the fact that like Sean talks about how like he wants people on the calls to pull up a chair and to discuss with us. Um, I, I really want, uh, the, the calls that if we, if we set up one for you guys to engage with us, I want everybody to be able to feel like they can, um, speak and share and that we're all kind of on the same, um, level, uh, when it comes to that. And so, um, 
be on the lookout for that. Um, we'll also try to get that set up here um, shortly as well um, and out to you guys. Um, and so um, we'll probably do like one on hitting. We'll probably do one on pitching. We'll also do probably one on uh, sabermetrics as well. And so I think that, and then two, we'll record that and then we'll throw that in the uh, Discord server. Um, again, uh, the, the main purpose too behind all this uh, with the Discord server is for it to be a, a free resource. Um, and so, you know, a place where people can go and find information and people can share information as well. Um, and so that's kind of the, the purpose and intent behind it is to be a, a community, uh, driven resource, uh, for people. So if you guys want to, um, check that out, we'll have, again, the link will be in the description. Um, we'll also, um, throw that up on Twitter and we'll tweet that out. And, um, you guys can follow the baseball coaches clubhouse. So you can, you can find the, the baseball coaches clubhouse at BSB coaches club H. Um, so again, that is BSB coaches club H. So the discord link will be there. I also put together uh, a video um, kind of just demoing what's all in there and then also how to change your notification settings so that um, one of the cool things um, about the Discord server, what I like about it is the fact that, you know, for example, if you guys uh, want to put into like, hey, YouTube channels and stuff or like um, want the server to auto pull certain things. So for example, it will, for our podcast, like every time that we upload a podcast, um, it'll automatically get shared in the channel that we have for it. Um, and so that way you can go and you can find specific things that you're looking for and get notifications for it. So let's say there's a specific discussion. So like I've been in some group chats and um, all of a sudden they get going on a great conversation or whatever, but it's completely blowing up my phone. Um, and so, and they're also talking about, um, you know, something that I don't care about. And so uh, at, at the time, and so instead of like, the cool thing about this is that you can um, change your notification settings on specific channels. And currently the way that I have it set up is that the, the default notifications is, is that you only get a notification if you're added, you know, if someone um, directs a specific or adds you. And so what you can do though, is if you want to get notifications on like, say for example, hitting, you would just go in and you would change um, the, the, notifi the notification settings on that so that you would um, get notified only uh, when somebody actually uh, puts something in there. And then let's say there's a, a great conversation going on in there and then like you actually need your phone silent or you're like busy and you want to stop getting notifications. You can go in there and actually turn off the notifications for a set period of time and then it'll automatically um, turn the notifications back on. So let's say you wanted it silent for an hour or you wanted it silent for the next 24 hours um, or until you tell it to be get turned back on. So like that's one of the cool things of, about this um, that makes it different than um, potentially like a Slack group or like a, a group me chat. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I'm super excited about it. As am I, yeah, really excited, and I can't wait to 
kind of share in the knowledge of so many great people out there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, again, if you guys uh, want to connect with either Robert or I, you can follow us at uh, G-B-O-Y-U-M-0-1 for myself. And then it's uh, at Robert Fry 40. Um, There are no spaces in that. I messed that up one time. So um, feel free to reach out to either one of us. Um, Otherwise, we will uh, talk at you next time. Oh, 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 oh,